Hello and welcome to InfraDig, the IJ Global podcast series where we interview industry experts and lift the lid on the financing of infrastructure and energy in all its glorious geysers in every corner of the globe. I am Angus Leslie Melville, Editorial Director of IJ Global, Infrastructure Journal, and today I have with me Dr. Tim Stone, a CBE, who is internationally renowned in nuclear circles, and he will again be talking with us about baseload energy. To frame the discussion, let me introduce Tim properly. I've known Tim and a few different guises for the best part of 20 years, but most pertinent to today's podcast is his exposure to nuclear. No pun intended. Tim was appointed chair of the UK's Nuclear Industry Association in October 2018. He has also been chair of the Nuclear Risk Insurers for more than six years. He's an internationally renowned champion of nuclear energy as a primary solution to a low-carbon future, as well as a well-known figure in the infrastructure finance community. Now, last week, in the first of this three-part series of podcasts on nuclear energy, Tim focused a good deal on the UK's need to invest, invest a lot, and invest fast in nuclear to keep the lights on and hit net zero. We also went through a round-robin of international developments and discussed the impact of hydrogen and offshore wind. If you want to tune into those that podcast, the first in the series, I'm sure you'll find it somewhere on whatever platform you happen to be using. For today's podcast, we are taking a look into the financing of nuclear and then small nuclear reactor technology. For now, Tim, how on earth is the UK going to finance all this nuclear investment? As you pointed out last week, nuclear currently provides almost one-fifth of today's baseload energy and the other fourth-fifth needs to be replaced before 2050, I think it was you said. Um, That's a lot of investment and I'm guessing that regulated asset base model is about to be mentioned. Tim. Angus, good morning. Yes, you're quite right. RAB is about to be mentioned because there's some legislation currently going through Parliament which will enable um, RAB to be used to finance nuclear power stations, but also, I think in due course, infrastructure more widely. We've seen it used, as we all know, with Thames Tideway, and of course it's behind all the investment in water and um, other forms of regulated assets Uh, really since privatisation. So there's a long history there. The critical reason why it's so important for nuclear is that, um, certainly for the large reactors anyway, there's a huge sensitivity of the cost of electricity to the cost of capital. So to get a a, a very crude cigarette packet estimate, if we're allowed to do that these days, um, for a gigawatt-scale reactor like the sort of things down at Hinkley, for every percentage point variation in the cost of capital, the electricity price on the CFD mechanisms changes by about £13 a megawatt hour. Now let's just stand back and think about that, because for every billion of capex it changes by about £8. So this is hugely sensitive. And the question you have to ask yourself is really, what do you gain from having a high cost of capital? Now, um, since you and I first met in PFI days, one of the logic, uh, logical um, underpinnings of PFI was that the higher cost of capital was outweighed by the risk reduction and the competence that the private sector brought in. So there was a trade-off. So in in return for that higher cost of capital and public sector cost of capital, risk reduction actually brought the lifetime cost down. There is no such trade-off for large nuclear power stations. 
all that happens if you have a high cost of capital is you have a high cost of electricity. So you can think of a high cost of capital as an unintended and unnecessary tax on energy prices in the future. So uh, the use of RAB, once it goes through Parliament, should bring the cost of electricity from the large power stations down from £90, for example, with Hinkley, £92.50, down to somewhere between £40 and £60 for that sort of piece of equipment. And in due course, we might even see it go considerably lower. So we are getting to the point now where with a RAB financing, you end up with nuclear-powered electricity, which is pretty much cost-competitive with any other form of energy, at which point we can then have a sensible conversation about the system. But that was a long answer to a short question. Uh, but RAB is absolutely heading this way, and we have to think about this, as I said, in terms of uh, what would otherwise be an utterly unnecessary and damaging tax on energy cost, um, where that tax doesn't, in fact, even go back into pay for public services. So... Um, Yes, that's the starting point. Well, the one question I wanted to ask about, and I, I believe on the 16th of March, uh, the UK government's hosting a seminar to look at the RAP model for nuclear. I think I'm right on that, aren't I? Sure. Um, one, one thing I, I'm keen to know your view on, what's the incentive to maintain economic efficiency under the RAP model? Right, well, let's, let's look at what drives economic efficiency. And for a nuclear power station, it's, it's really two things. It's building the thing to time and cost. And then once it's running, running it basically flat out. And um, because there's no cost reduction when you turn the thing down. So this is where we come to how does a RAB actually drive incentives in terms of construction. And it's all to do, of course, with the incentive mechanism where um, if you can build a thing cheaper than a should cost, there should be an incentive in that to drive the... Um, better returns for the investors and conversely if you build it more expensively and slower then that will drive the returns down so there's a natural um, incentive mechanism built in there but and this is a big but you can't really use RAB mechanism unless you have a pretty reliable estimate of what the cost is going to be and the time that's going to be taken which means for nuclear you need to do it not for the first of a kind but for the second of a kind which is why using it for size well which is going to be a clone as closely as possible of what's been built at Hinkley, gives you that basis for a much more reliable, what should be a much more reliable, should cost estimate, and therefore um, an effective incentive mechanism. Hmm. Okay. How about um, appetite in the banking community? This is something that um, I'm keen to have a chat about. Because if, if there is some project finance element in the delivery of nuclear, well, now, uh, we're talking about, what, as much as, say, £20 billion worth of project finance. That's a, that's a big chunk of cash. Now, looking around the market, um, just from experience, you know, the French banks, they'll be all over this, but there's only so many of them. Japanese banks, they won't touch it with a barge pole. German banks, I think that's pretty unlikely. There's quite a lot of banks that um, won't, won't be willing to play in this space. Yeah. Um, are... are are we going to struggle to get the finance together? Should we go down project finance? I th <clears throat> it's really interesting. I mean, the, um, the best recent example of um, raising capital for nuclear <clears throat> is a fantastic green bond. And that's really interesting. A green bond that was run by uh, Bank of Montreal for Bruce Power. <clears throat> and they raised 500 million Canadian dollars, which I agree is not 20 billion, but we'll come back to that in a minute. They raised 500 million Canadian dollars, <clears throat> six times oversubscribed. So two things I'd say from that. that. That, first of all, proves that you absolutely can 
use nuclear and green bonds together, <clears throat> despite what the Treasury said uh, before Christmas last year. And secondly, it's quite clear from the conversations that they had with the market that there's plenty of interest here. And if I go more broadly into the, um, the big institutions rather than the banks, there's a huge focus now on green energy, on low-carbon energy in particular. And I don't know that the banks are themselves going to provide the vast bulk of the capacity, but the institutional market, I think, will. And I, from what we've seen already, the interest in the RAB mechanism for Sizewell, and more broadly in terms of the move towards supporting low-carbon primary energy, yep, $20 is a big amount, um, but I'm reasonably comfortable that we, we will get there with the right projects properly prepared. But it will be a big stretch around the market, certainly for the early ones, but this is not a nuclear issue. I think I said last time that if you look at the UK as a whole, we need to build something like about 10 gigawatts of low-carbon primary energy capacity every single year from 2025 to 2050. And it doesn't matter really what those gigawatts come from, but they are all give or take the same order of magnitude of pricing. So the financing opportunity, I'm going to turn it that way around, in support of the low-carbon future of this country is vast, and it's going to be a case of how we create structures and particularly the projects that attract the financier rather than other countries. Because don't forget now, we are also competing globally and just in the nuclear world across Europe, as I said last time, you know, whether it's the Czech Republic, Poland, the Dutch government, Canadians, the US, there's a lot of interest now, and, an increase, and that will carry on growing. So the demand for the capital will just keep on increasing. And for energy as a whole, never mind just nuclear, never mind just nuclear, that scale of demand <clears throat> is going to be massively unprecedented, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the institutions more broadly react to this. Because we're all in the same boat, as I said last time. There's no silver bullet here. Nuclear is a critical part, but only a part of hitting net zero. Okay. So, as you've already alluded to, and um, in the last podcast, um, there's an awful lot has to be delivered. Uh, Tim, are we going to manage this? If we go down the nuclear line, it takes so long for these to go through planning. There's so much effort has to go into delivering these. Are we going to achieve this? Okay, now, this is really one of those, um, let's just have a look elsewhere. It can be done. Abu Dhabi have built their four reactors pretty much on time and on budget. And the challenge with big nuclear projects, like any big project, comes down to the preparation. The Chinese have been building nuclear reactors consistently for the last 25, 30 years, and they just crank them out like shelling peas because they know what they're doing, and they are practiced, and that's where we have to get to. So in the same way that the renewables industry started in a fairly relatively stuttering way and is now very disciplined and organized because they've been practicing and repeating a bit like a concert pianist going to Carnegie Hall, nuclear has to do the same. And when we come to talk about SMRs, we will have a slightly different conversation there because the trend already as you move from the 1990s through to today has been an increasing look at modularization, even the large reactors. So um, if you look, for example, at the difference between the EPR from the French designers, from the Arriva EDF, and the Westinghouse AP1000. There's a lot more modularity in the Westinghouse design, as indeed there is in the Toshiba boiling water reactor that was going to be built on Wilver before Hitachi had to pull out. So this all comes down to how do you make big projects work. It's conversations we've had you know, over the last 25 years. And there's a very interesting piece of work that was done by the Energy Technology Institute a few years ago, 
looking, and it's called nuclear cost drivers. So you can find the thing on a Google search. And astonishingly, having looked at everything that had been built post Three Mile Island and having talked to project managers who built the projects around the world, one of the profound conclusions they came to was that the biggest determinant as to whether you build on time and on cost was the extent to which the engineering drawings are complete at the point that you start work. Well, gosh, what a surprise that was. But it can be done. It absolutely can be done. And you know, nuclear, as part of a balanced energy system, we have to learn how to do this. And somebody will. And if it's not the UK, other countries will. And then the technology and the money, since we're talking finance, will go to the places where these projects are built better. And so the UK now has to put a lot of effort, not just into chasing yet more technology. We don't need any more technology. We know what works and what will work. We just need to get on with building. And the target now, the optimization target as a national level, should be gigawatts a year under a price cap. So basically anything under £60 a megawatt hour, just build it. Just build it as fast as you can. And for the people who are looking at future projects and future technical designs, detailed designs, it has to be about how do you do this really quickly and take out construction cost? How do you take out every penny of unnecessary cost and just collapse the time scales? I want to pick on your point about permitting because this is a huge issue. The whole process for both licensing and planning applications, particularly planning applications, is in need of a pretty serious look. The regulators are already looking at how they can work together between different countries and take the licensing work that have been done in one country to inform the licensing process in another and speed that up. But the planning process, my goodness gracious, if you look back at what happened with, with Hinckley, it's about 50,000 pages of submission altogether. You know, 20,000, I think it was 20,000 submission and 30,000 pages of appendices. But it's profoundly stupid. You do not need that for big nationally significant infrastructure. Once the government's decided that, they, that we need to do stuff and we know where the sites are, Yes, there has to be a proper planning process that allows a proper discourse. But fundamentally, we can't have that sort of process for smaller projects. You can't have that sort of process for the big wind projects that we're going to need as well, the big solar projects we're going to need. Everybody in the energy sector will, I think, now come together to look at how we can drive a much better, and better in terms of outcome for citizens, how we can drive a better permitting process. Well, you kind of anticipated um, a question of mine, but um, uh, when, when you mentioned Carnegie Hall, it uh, did make me think of the old joke of the tourists saying, um, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. And um, yes, indeed, the more practice we have, the better people will be at delivering these. And yes, we're in competition against the rest of the world. But um, the question you anticipated was that planning in Abu Dhabi and China is very, very different to what yeah. we have to deal with here in the UK. It, it absolutely is. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to have the planning process we have now. It wasn't set up in 2007-8 for speed. It, that was just not an issue at the time. At the time, it was, it was about how do we have a national, uh, nationally significant infrastructure planning process um, which would pass the political muster. The political test now is very different. It's about how do we build an energy system for the future of our children and grandchildren as economically efficient, and that means pace. So the question is, and it's a question, a political question really, what do you do at a national political level about a, designing a planning process, a permitting process more broadly, that does what's necessary for the public 
but at the same time protects them from its abuse in terms of slowing the process down unnecessarily. So there's a, there's a big political conversation to be had, but I'm as clear as day sitting here that the process we have now is way too cumbersome and just was not even built for comfort, let alone speed. Built for comfort rather than speed, absolutely. Um, but you're confident of the delivery of a certain degree of our energy requirement in the coming years for the UK alone? Yes, I am. I am. Um, whether it's enough to get to net zero will come down in the end to just physically how fast we do this. In the, the, um, I suspect the government's going to come out fairly soon with some, some new assessments of what we have to do because I think the shock that's being caused by the gas crisis and the recognition of lack of sovereignty in our energy systems will, will force a bit of a rethink. But any practical solution to get to 2050, you're building of the order of magnitude of 10 gigawatts of something a year. That's three Hinkleys a year. That's 720 of the world's largest wind turbines every year just for the UK. You can't do that with any single one of them. You've got to do the whole lot. And that sheer physical build process has got to be as slick as possible. And you can't have it held up for years at a time with a planning process where the consequence of that planning process, the cost of that planning process, will be translated into the achievement of net zero or not. And indeed, perhaps even the efficiency of the energy sector in 2050 and the competitiveness of our economy. This is a really big national scale issue. And people have compared it to a wartime challenge. I think that's, in current circumstances, a bit, um, a bit unnecessary. But it is certainly the biggest challenge we've had since the Industrial Revolution. And this is where British creativity and resolve has got to come to the fore. And we need some leadership from politicians that gives us the cover to just get on and do this stuff in a sensible way. Right then, that's big nuclear. Um, and... I think that kind of leads us rather nicely onto the smaller end of the scale. Small modular reactors, SMRs. Now, that's something there's been a lot of talk about over the years and some more recent developments. Uh, last week, you mentioned the modular approach is being taken on nuclear, comparing it to the installation of new McDonald's burger joints. Uh, you lay the foundations, water in over there, water out over there, electrics fed in in the left-hand corner, slap a lid on it, and you're flipping burgers in the blink of an eye. Is it really that easy for SMRs, Tim? It's not quite as easy as that, but the principle is still exactly the same. Um, it's important to realize that um, a small modular reactor actually on its own doesn't get you anywhere. The reactor is just the kettle that boils the water to spin the turbine, to spin the generator. So it's small modular power stations. And the real, there are a number of real advantages of, of SMRs as they're being developed. The first one is that the vast bulk of the work happens in a factory in properly tightly con controlled conditions as opposed to out on a rainy, windy site uh, with all the assembly happening by hand. Second thing is that for the smaller reactors, you could put a reactor in a module. You could put the turbines and generator in a module. And if you can build all that in a factory, you can parallelize, if that is a word, factory construction, but you can't parallelize on site. So you can actually be building the components the big components in the factories and then delivering them to site and assembling them on site relatively quickly. The challenge, of course, you know, going back to the first podcast, is that we need about 10 gigawatts a year every single year for 25 years of low-carbon primary energy. And it is that pace and scale that's the issue. 
So a different approach uh, to uh, avoiding stick-built construction is exactly what we need. And in addition to that, there are quite a lot of sites which aren't suitable for, for the big gigawatt-scale reactors. There's plenty more sites where smaller reactors might work. Uh, and the other point, too, is that by having a smaller, a larger number of smaller uh, reactors around, you're distributing any sort of um, risk to the transmission system. You're, you're, you're reducing the um, number of single points of failure. And the final thing that really matters here, of course, is that the unit cost of one of these things is a, a fraction of the gigawatt-scale one. So it makes the financing of them, which is where we started this, much easier in that, you know, if you're looking at raising of the order of two to three billion for a small reactor, that's an entirely, entirely different kettle of fish to the, the 20 plus billion that you need for the big ones. So lots of advantages. And we're now getting to a stage where with the lead of Rolls-Royce, who are building a small modular power station, not just a reactor, but the entire shooting match, um, that's the direction of travel. Others are now looking to copy that. And I actually heard somebody um, talking to me in private the other week, I won't say who it was, we're actually talking about trying to get down the time on site to around two years or a bit under. So from the minute that that concrete bat is in place, under two years later, they'll be starting commissioning, ready to start generating. So there's, there's a very different approach here. Um, and, of course, going with that is that if you reduce the time on site, you're working capital demands are much shorter, which again reduces the sensitivity to the cost of capital. So there's lots and lots and lots of advantages um, to complementing the big ones, which we can build in the short term, with fleets of little ones in the uh, medium term. So very, very interesting opportunities. And without pausing to take a breath, this is already going at a rate of knots in Canada. Um, Ontario, our group, just before Christmas, um, announced a deal with GE for their 300 megawatt boiling water reactor. Um, very simple piece of kit, built, um, designed from an earlier licensed unit, so it should be faster to license in Canada. That could be valuable here for the UK as well as Rolls, because our regulators work in the same way, so our regulator could take the licensing work that the Canadian regulator does um, as a much more rapid approach to going through licensing. So lots of advantages here. And I'll finally shut up and give you a chance to put a word in edgeways <laughs> by saying that Poland, Estonia, Czech Republic, Romania, Netherlands, all looking at SMRs for a variety of different reasons, not just electricity, but in some cases process heat for factories too. So um, it's a bit of a brave new world. But I will finally shut up by saying the sort of revolution we're looking at here is a bit like the original IBM PC, because prior to them, all the computers were pretty much boxes. You, you, you had a big circuit board with lots of bits on it. IBM produced the idea of a motherboard. And the motherboard was a um, printed circuit board that was basically the size of the PC. And there was a socket in there where the, where the processor went. There was another socket where the graphic card went. There was another socket where the sound card went. Another socket where the network card went. And those sockets were standard. And it meant that you could just plug things together and assemble your own version of the PC very quickly. And it's that sort of mentality that is really important that we head towards in speeding up the delivery on site of working small modular power stations. Uh, two, two things there. Um, one, I mean, I was going for SMR, small modular reactors, but you, you're favoring their small modular power stations, and the, which is an interesting um, diversion from my terminology, um, but also... Two years, my goodness. I mean, that, that's, that's six months more than it is to slap up um, a CCGT. 
Well, that's that's the principle. And of course, if if you can make the if you can simplify the assembly on site to what I would simplistically called giant duplo. There is no reason in principle why you couldn't do it. It will come down to the creativity of the designers, the industrial designers, not the nuclear engineers. That's all done. It's how you put the components together. And the reason why I, I focus on small modular power stations is, you know, in my former life, I used to finance airplanes. I didn't finance engines. It's the airplane with the engine that generates the revenue. It's the power station that generates the revenue, not the, the expensive kettle. So it's getting that focus onto what really matters which is generating low-carbon energy as quickly as possible. And it's the deployment at gigawatts a year that's the driver here. So uh, I think two years is probably a bit on the, on the brave side, but hey, if you don't ask, you don't get. And it's, I think what we've been missing for a long time is that real innovation, because the assumption has been that nuclear is very difficult and complicated and slow. And, well, it doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be. So let's see where it goes. But I'm, uh, I'm quite confident that we will see um, roles bringing the time down and improving the quality of construction on site, assembly on site. Um, but it's how far both they and others can take that principle and simplify the assembly process. Absolutely. And not one of them is going to be serving a burger. Not yet. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much once again for your time and talking us through nuclear. It's been really, really appreciated. I look forward to our next and final podcast where we will begin focusing primarily on nuclear, discussing advanced modular reactors and the role that will be played by hydrogen and the holy grail for nuclear, fusion. Uh -huh. <laughs> forward to that. For, yes, indeed. Uh, for now, thank you so much for joining us. Feel free to follow us on whatever platform you're using and we will be back next week, hopefully, with another InfraDig podcast that will primarily be on nuclear. For those who turned in, um, I hope you found this anything but InfraDig.